My second grade teacher at Lakeview Elementary School in Mayopac, New York, was a woman named Mrs. Travellini. And that year, way back in 1980, she assigned the class to present an oral report, the subject I don't remember. Mrs. Travellini knew I liked watching sports. So one day she said, why don't you make your presentation on a television? I didn't understand. Make a TV out of cardboard box, she said. Make the frames on rolls of paper. Tell your story on the pages while turning the rolls. Be your own broadcaster. So that's what I did. I stood before Mrs. Travellini's second grade class and told a story. It was, I truly believe to this day, my first taste for love of journalism. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode is a first for this podcast. Three writer guests, one episode. I welcome to the Yang Dome, John Hurwitz, Hayden Schlossberg, and Josh Heald, the creators and writers of the hit Netflix series, Cobra Kai. And just so you don't get confused, John is the first person to answer questions. Josh is the second, and Hayden's the third. I think you'll love this as much as I did. This is episode number 189. Let's sling some yang. Jeff, your clothing sucks. Also, you have toothpaste on your face. First of all, thank you guys so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, this is the first time the podcast is called Two Writers Slinging Yang. I've never had four writers at the same time. So this is uh, a revolutionary moment, and uh, hopefully it works out. Um, I was just talking with John about this. I wrote a book called The Bad Guys Won. When the book first came out about the 86 Mets, it was optioned. And someone said, we're going to give you $30,000 to option this book. And I was like, holy shit, I'm getting $30,000. And they're making my book a movie. This is amazing. I'm telling people they're making my book a movie. They're making my book a movie. <laughs> and here we sit 17 years later. There's been no Bad Guys One movie. The money was nice because it was free. I feel like you guys work... It's funny, people see it from afar and they're like, man, Hollywood, glamour, movies, blah, blah, blah. I've had so many books, people call me and say, we know who's going to play so-and-so in this movie about your book and blah, blah, blah. And the shit just never happens. And I actually wonder how you guys have survived and thrived in a business that seems to take a million shits for every gold nugget. You know, it's it's so funny that, that you say that. You know, we... Uh, you know, just going back to the beginning of our careers, uh, you know, just a little backstory. Uh, Hayden and I uh, have been friends since high school and talked about writing movies way back then. Ah, nice. You know, that's <laughs> that. Uh, so, uh, and then Josh, uh, we met freshman year in college. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've all, you know, had interest in doing what we're doing. But Hayden and I, when we sold our first movie, it was a similar story to you where it was like, we wrote this script, we managed to get it out into LA and it's being read by people. And then we get a call from, uh, you know, an assistant who is basically like, my boss wants to make your movie. Like uh, he's a producer, like, let, let's, let, let, you know, let, I want to put you in touch. And we called each other afterwards. And we're like, our movie's getting made. Right. And then it was just like, no, no. Like, so we developed it with him and then he gave it to agents and managers. And we ended up luckily selling that script. But then like, I was like, okay, well we sold it to MGM. Like, you know, okay, like we're on a path. It's too good to not get made. And then like, no, you go through a process and there was a director on board for a period of time and like you're developing it and it's not going great. And then you, you learn very quickly like that. It's basically like R and D at a drug company. There's like these studios, they have a bunch of different projects and they're developing them all. 
And, uh, you know, I think for, for us, you know, it's really just, you know, keeping your head down and, and eventually realizing, okay, my job mostly is writing scripts that might or might not happen, but at least I'm getting paid to do that instead of something else, <laughs> you know, some other thing. And that's the day job. And then we were lucky enough that like Harold and Kumar go to White Castle got made pretty early in our careers to be like, okay, like it can happen. Like there's a world in which something could actually find its way onto the screen. As a fan of the good guys in the 86 uh, World Series, that was that was an example of like one of the earliest heartbreaks I had as a, as a sports fan of, of New England based teams growing up, we didn't have much, you know, we had like the end of like the Celtics uh, empire and then it was nothing forever. Uh, and that was like a moment there was 85 and 86, the Patriots and uh, and the Red Sox had heartbreak <laughs> like right in a row. But I had the benefit of, of moving to LA about nine months after John and Hayden. Um, and in, in that period of time, I saw what John was just talking about happen in real time where it felt like, oh, these guys, you know, they're going to make like 12 movies by the time I get there. And I, I'm watching and they're experiencing like the beginnings of development hell where, you know, you're getting notes and you're doing a draft and they're saying this actor is interested. So you're changing, you know, the character to a degree to to accommodate somebody. And then you learn that that person was never even approached and they're not even available. And now it's changing hands again. And there's new cooks in the kitchen and you you, you slowly begin to, lower your expectations of what you expect and, and you're grateful for that, you know, that the belief and the money that comes with it at the start of a project, but you're also having this like long game thinking of like, okay, I'm going to put everything I am into this, except I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to some part of my soul to make sure it doesn't get sucked into, you know, this has to happen or, or the world shall burn because um, you know, those disappointments are far more um, frequent than, than victories. Wait, I just want to say, I was literally, <laughs> I just thought of this. I was in a meeting at Showtime. It was me, former Met Ron Darling. I think Mike Tolan, who's done like a million different 30 for thirties and, you know, different movies. And we walk out of there and we're like, this is, this is it. This is it. Oh my God, this is it. And then literally not another word. And wait, all right, so wait. So John, you and Hayden, I'm reading this story and you guys, you're basically, you know, like most of us have gone through at some point when you're younger, you're kind of like the wonder kids and you got this stuff going and there's this movie filthy and you wrote it and it's going to be big and everyone loves it. And it's like American pie, but raunchier and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of like, you think you're the shit. And I wonder like, I'll ask you, Hayden, is there, is there a moment early on where you're like, holy fuck, this actually isn't going to happen. Like, you go from like, this is the most amazing thing ever to holy shit, this isn't going to happen. And then how do you rebound from that sort of disappointment? Yeah, I, you feel that a lot. It sucks. Um, it, you know, it, it, in so many ways, you know, I, you know, I, I hate bringing it up because it's a totally different type of thing, but like, you know, it, it's similar in some ways to a miscarriage in the sense that there's a lot of excitement that's built around you. You, you almost get to the point where you don't want to tell friends and people about projects because you don't want to build up the anticipation of it. And, you know, early on you, um, you know, everybody sees the articles and you get excited and people are questioning, well, when's it getting made? And you just reach this point where you know that, you know what, um, I don't want to keep investing emotion into this because it, you keep hitting a brick wall and to not go insane, you have to fall in love with something else. And so you just, you, you start a new blank page knowing though, you know, over time it gets to you, you know, you, you have to just forget, you have to forget that most of the time things don't work out. 
and keep going at it and move on from the, the tragedy of, you know, your, your, your baby not getting, um, you know, the green light. Yeah. I was going to say, Hayden, the thing that that I distinctly remember from early in our career was like you, like you were, you were saying there, Jeff, like, you know, we sold this first script and you're feeling like, yeah, I'm the shit. Like, yeah, we, we were like back in Philadelphia, like writing and like, you know, our off campus housing, uh, like writing the screenplay saying like, well, our attitude at the time was, well, we don't like the state of youth comedies. They didn't, they don't feel like they're speaking to us and they don't sound like people that we know. We feel like we could do better. And our logic was very simple. It was like, well, if we can write a script that actually captures what young people are like, and we kind of understand how the rhythms of a movie work, then they should buy our script instead of the bad ones. That, that was like literally our logic. And like, it worked out the first time. It was right. like, oh, okay, like, yeah, that was great. So then we write our second script, like right after that. And we, we had moved to LA. And even before we had a couch, we were like sitting on the floor of our apartment together, writing this second youth comedy. Uh, and, but in- This is Harold and Kumar? No, no, Harold and Kumar was, uh, it was a couple years later. Okay. So we write this other script that basically, um, uh, it was it was six or seven months after we had sold the first script. But in the time in between, a bunch of like American Pie imitators had come out, like a bunch of very bad R-rated youth comedies. So like three of them came out and they were all bad and they all did badly at, in the box office. So our logic when we saw those in the movie theaters as people who were like the audience were, were like, oh, well, that movie sucks. Like everyone will understand that. that but what we didn't realize was Okay, when we wrote our next youth co- R-rated youth comedy and it was hitting the market, now the marketplace was, oh, no, R-rated youth comedies, that worked a year or two ago. It's not working right now. So we didn't sell that second script. And it was one of those things where, like, we were like, whoa, like, this script we think is better than that first script that we wrote, but no one's buying it. Yeah, and but we're, like, we're used to, like, what we touch turns to gold, like, the first time you touch it. And then you write this whole script, and wait a second. I get that it's not going to get made, but you're saying nobody's even buying this? Like, do you know who we are? We're the guys who sold that whole thing. And it's, it's so that was, that knocks you down. And then you, you know, it's constantly like, you got to forget what happened. It's, it's like a player, it, like coming out of a bad loss. Like you try to learn from it, but you also try to forget it. And you have to remember that like every role of, you know, the roulette wheel is a new role. You can't be reacting to what just happened either. You know, you can't say, oh, well, because that happened, we will never write another youth comedy either because the marketplace tries to be reactionary, but it takes years for a movie to go through development and get made and come out. And the market's attitude by the time something comes out is going to be completely different than the attitude was going in. So, I mean, it, the, the lesson that we all learned early on is you can have the greatest or the worst, you know, idea of all time. And both of those things can get made but the way that they both get made are through a series of relationships and luck and attachments and things that have absolutely nothing to do with that original idea. And if you actually start with a great idea that ends up with a great idea, it's like, it's like hitting your number on that roulette wheel, like five or six or seven or eight times in a row. I mean, like, you know, I I don't know if you you guys have ever talked about like the bagel story, uh, but, but I mean, like you have these moments early on in, in, in development, I don't know if they want, maybe there's a way uh, you can frame it in a way that's not personal, but, but you, you have these relationships where the people you meet, whether it's a director, a producer, a, a studio executive, 
there, there's moments I can point to at every failed project where you're like, that's the day. That's the day <laughs> that looking back on it, everything after that was poisoned. Yeah. John and I, we, we wrote our first script. It sold MGM, bought it. They put this director on it and it was not a good match, but we're trying to do our best. And there's this one day where I said, you know what? Like I'm hungry. I'm just going to go out and get some bagels and come back. And I left John with this director. And when I came back, nobody was talking. It was kind of eerily silent. And I was like, so does anybody want the bagels? I, I have them right here. And then all of a sudden the director's like throws the script down and clearly John and him had been through something. <laughs> and everything went to hell and, and, you know, things were said that could, you know, genies couldn't be put back in the bottle. <laughs> um, yeah, this, this, yeah. As somebody who was there for the period of time in between when Hayden was out getting bagels, you know, I think one thing that has worked for us in our careers is that we, you know, we're able to collaborate and we're able to um, like, there's nothing we love more than collaboration. I love working with a writer's room, for example, on Cobra Kai. I love working with executives that have great thoughts or a filmmaker that has great thoughts. It's the best, but you also need to be somebody, even when you're a young writer, if you were working with somebody who's a director on board your project and you see that they don't get it at all and that there's an issue that like you can try to work with them the best that you can, but we're not going to be quiet if somebody's ruining your project. And basically like what happened in that scenario was we, Hayden and I would drive to this director's house every day. We would be there from nine in the morning till five at night. And we drive home miserable every single day for months. And then this one day, it was like this one kind of pitch that he kept bringing up that we was so hack and so lame and so not the way young people would act or whatever that like, I probably was disrespectful in my, in my discarding of it this time. And it didn't go over well, but like, and then the bagels uh, arrived yeah. and then, and then the bagels <laughs> arrived and then, and then like, hey guys, what do you want? You want a poppy seed? You want this? <laughs> but like, you know, at, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, like it's, you know, finding the way to collaborate, but also like, you know, not let your project get ruined. Like, you and want, try to do it, a, and you try to do it as politically as possible, but there are times where, you know, it, you hit the wall and, you know, these marriages that shouldn't be together should perhaps split up. It's a, ba it's a balance. It's, it's, not, it, it's not getting too deeply connected to anything where you're going to fight tooth and nail for bullshit at the expense of the project, and you find yourself objecting to any creative change whatsoever as if it's poison and as if your writing is, you know, a gift from the heavens. But it's also knowing which battles to choose and what's worth fighting for. And, and honestly, that, that only comes with time and experience and perspective. Like, in the beginning, you're fighting for everything. Your first draft is the best draft, and anyone who has anything to say otherwise, you know, is garbage. And, you know, I largely still believe that and I will always believe that, but I'm willing to accept the fact that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's a little bit flawed. Two thoughts on this one. Number one, as all, all of us are East Coast transplants, we can all acknowledge the beagles out here are shit. So I'm sure. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's really what, what, what set me off. And number two, um, do you guys are, so you write filthy when you're in college and now you're in your early 40s. Do you? Do you look back at that and think, filthy, man, that was fucking awesome? Or do you look back and think, eh, it was kind of flawed and maybe it wasn't as good as we thought it was? I, I think that it was, there are a lot of flaws, but there was something in it that there was a reason why it sold. I think that like it, it had, it, there, 
there was something about it that set it apart from other things in terms of the voice at the time. Um, and we did have some really clever, you know, set pieces. Our brand of comedy always, but especially back then was a fearlessness to, um, when it came to being both edgy and also like really stupid, dumb humor. Um, and we weren't afraid to be dumb. Like we love Dumb and Dumber. Like that was one of our favorite movies of all time. Um, but it has to kind of somehow come off smart. And I feel like the, we always were able to write something that if you read it, you would laugh. And so I think, you know, and we also were smart enough to write from our personal experience at the time. Cause we were thinking, well, why would anybody buy something from a bunch of like 20 year olds or 21 year olds who haven't sold anything before? Well, if it's a story about 20 year olds, then at least it makes sense that we wrote it and somebody could read it and, uh, and, you know, American Pie had just come out and it, it was, it seemed like, hey, you know what, this is the next step. This is, this is them, you know, kids coming out of college, figuring out what to do with their lives in a really funny R-rated way. And so I think that there, there's like a reason why it's sold. And a lot of the things that we bring to our writing today were in that very first script, but it was also so raw. And I think um, when it comes to like some of the storytelling, some of the, the, the you know, our, our experience with plot and story, I think, were much more learned, whereas our ability to make people laugh was kind of there from the beginning. I'm actually interested in something you guys said. So when I watch a show, the thing that I always find obvious when you see younger people talking is whether the dialogue was written by people who know how young people talk or not. I think it's one of the most glaring things. Teenagers, especially I have two teens now and hearing how they talk. And in, in Cobra Kai, just you're writing dialogue for contemporaries, you're writing dialogue for people who are older, and you're also writing dialogues for teenagers. Is it easier to write dialogue for someone who's 20 when you're 20 than when you're 40? Is that, And is there a way yes. to go about it at sitting in our perch writing for a 20-year-old? Yeah, I, definitely. I think I think we write the characters who are closer in age to us in it's just the most natural way. Uh, possible. Uh, I think, you know, part of it is having a writer's room of people of all ages is helpful. Part of it is doing research in the writing and, you know, get, uh, you know, trying to have a sense of how young people talk. I think that, you know, our sense is that a lot of young people really enjoy the show and feel like it, it is working in an authentic way, but others may not feel that way. You know, I think we're doing the best that we can with that, with that dialogue. But how do you do it? How do you make I mean, it? How do you write for a twenty-year-old? So I think we put ourselves back into the mindset of being a young person and trying to think emotionally from that headspace first and foremost, and then secondarily, it's you know trying to figure out like you know whether sometimes we do research. We'll go online and like like you know whether it's watching young people talk or looking up you know the the kinds of phrases that young people are saying or yeah, talking they, within the writer's room of how people, young people talk. I was going to say, I think that you can, you know, fall into traps doing that too. If you think too exactly. much about it, I think it's, it works best. Like nowadays because of social media, people in their forties have a little bit more of an insight into like how people are talking. So you're like, okay, that's fire. That's hype. All right. We're using flex in this way now. Okay. I'm seeing how this is. And if, if you actually are incorporating it yourself, then you could write it that way. But if you're just putting it in, like kids talk in all different ways. And there are kids who sound a little bit more like adults and it's okay to write, 
just the way you would write, you would think for that character. And if it's not using the most contemporary lingo, kids will still understand it. You know, it, it may not be the, you know, Cobra Kai may not be like the slice of life show for 18 year olds that like, I don't know, certain other thing like euphoria is, you know, um, that may be, you know, more focused on what kids, how kids are talking today. Whereas, you know, what we're going on our show, it's more about universal things that, that are a little bit more evergreen and occasionally we, we try our best, but sometimes, you know, you could, you know, you could tell that it's, you know, older people writing, but it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if it's working. Well, it's also it's you, an ongoing, you, it's an ongoing exercise. Yeah. You know, we've, now that we've gotten to know the individual actors who, you know, inhabit these characters, we, we kind of write more honestly to, to the way that they naturally want to deliver a line. You know, you'll find them struggling at times to deliver something and you're like oh they've never seen that word before i guess that's that's leaving that character's vocabulary from now on because it's just going to sound unnatural and you'll find just a way that they naturally change a line by accident or on purpose or the the pace at which they speak you can put more words in their mouth it it kind of just kind of settles into itself but it always just starts at a place of what's the meaningful information that they need to say and it, 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 there's not a ton of, I mean, there's been moments where we're like, okay, I need something for a character for Brooks to say to Kyle. Yes, like, exactly. Who's, yeah. who's the henchman to the bully? And what's he going to say when he thinks something's awesome? Because awesome sounds dated. Yeah. And you, know, that, you end that, up in these four hour conversations where you land on Savage. And ultimately, you know, someone's like, well, why would he say that? And you're like, well, well we fucking researched it. I, we've always kind of poked fun at how kids are supposed to talk. Even in um, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, we had our like bad guy characters in that. They were always talking about like extreme as if like that's how kids talked, you know. So, you know, for us, I think we, you know, we sometimes like poke fun at like, you know, youth culture and and we come at it from that angle as opposed to like being so obsessed with capturing you know the essence of of how how kids are talking because it's the kids talk all different ways but you also work with the actors i think the the final thing i would say is like you know we're not people who say okay you must say every word as it is on the page when we're when we speak with the young act young actors on our show we will say to them deliver you get the sentiment of what we're getting across here deliver it in as natural way as as you think it would be and more often than not they basically say the lines that were in the script but occasionally they'll change a few words that make it feel more of today it's funny because we were uh, we were watching an episode the other day and it's mainly me my son and my wife who watch and my daughter sits in her chair and she's on tiktok right and there is a moment in one of the shows and she just looks up and uh the, the daughter danny larusa's daughter was texting and she capitalized something and my daughter goes she would never capitalize and we're right <laughs> This one right back to phone, and I was thinking like the nightmare. It almost seems like you risk more authenticity trying too hard. Yeah, like, it seems like if you try too hard, you just seem like a forty-year-old guy trying too hard. Well, the benefit yeah. of this show is that is that the kids are naturally falling into the rhythms of their senses. So you have a lot of these kids taking on some of the attitudes of Johnny specifically in terms of what they think is cool and the things they're gravitating toward. So you find natural scenes where characters are talking about movies like over the top instead of, you know, being obsessed with whatever the, the new social media, you know, du jour is of the day. For me personally, the idea of being in a being part of a collaborative writing community 
would be like eating rat poison. When you write a book, you basically, you're in your hole for two years and you're by yourself mm-hmm. and you do your research and everything. You're just here by yourself. And that's kind of my existence, my happy place. And I always, when I was at Sports Illustrated, we'd have seven or eight editors for every story. And it was just misery. Clearly, Cobra Kai is a very collaborative writing effort and a writing room effort. How does that work without sort of losing your mind, having your ego destroyed, having your dreams of being this great blah, blah, blah? Like, how does it work? Well, I I think for us, it starts from a place that the three of us have been friends for 20 some odd years. And I think that, um, first of all, Hayden and I have always worked as a duo. So we've had that relationship of the checks and balances where we both have to like something. Now, Josh was a lone wolf. So for him coming into this, even coming into this trio, and you heard his, you know, philosophy on, you know, getting feedback from people uh, about like, you know, how he feels like everything he wrote, writes is gold from, from the beginning. It was probably a little bit more of a challenge for him, you know, coming into a mix with the two of us. But because we have a history uh, and a friendship and a shared kind of like desire and goal from the beginning that, you know, it's just a natural thing. Three friends collaborating at the start of it. And because we're the showrunners of the show, it's the three of us that really like, especially early on and the, each season, it's a little bit less figured out, but our process with Cobra Kai is it's the three of us come out up with like what the season is overall. We'll talk about a lot of the different storylines. We'll talk about different ideas, different episodes and things like that, especially season one, where it was really the three of us like telling everybody, okay, here's how it is. And they were kind of helping us fill it in each season. We have a little bit less time to prepare that kind of thing. So we will still do that, but we've gotten to know these writers or many of whom have worked there, you know, now in they're, they're in the fourth season with us where they're part of the group. They're part of like the discussion that we have and we respect their opinions too. And they've come up with great ideas that we've loved. Uh, there are times in a writer's room and we've been in writer's rooms where you feel like you're, you're like, it's driving you crazy because you're like, we, no, we're on a path. And then there's this one voice that comes in and they're like throwing you off the path. And then you're entertaining that voice briefly and, or for a couple hours and shit, like we were on something and then this thing threw it off. So it's the job of the showrunner to try to keep it reined in, keep it focused. But at the end of the day, it's the three of us who have to uh, love every moment, even if not everybody else is loving every moment. Yeah. I mean, the three of us are driving, you know, a, a a large fire truck that, that has, you know, multiple steering wheels and we all need to be in communication with each other to make sure it doesn't like just take out a whole lane full of cars. And the thing that makes it work for the three of us is that, like John says, we've known each other so long. And even if we have different opinions or different ideas about what we think is best, we at least know that the other person's not coming from a perspective of, I don't respect this person's opinion at all. Like at least we respect like each other's intellect and, and the idea that they thought of something that they believe in. They're not just a child who came in from the woods with an idea that I need to swat away. And, and because, so we, so we take our disagreements with each other, you know, forcefully and meaningfully, but respectfully. And then we have hiring power over the room where we're not just being told these are the people you're working with and you have to, and it's an egalitarian situation. It's at the end of the day, we have veto power. We, we, we want to, make sure that the conversation is fruitful and that it goes to places we never imagined. But when it goes to a place we never imagined and we don't like being there, we, we can reverse that fire truck and run over everything that we came to to get there and, and get back on track. 
Yeah, I was I was just jumping in there, and you so you saw a little bit of how that worked. Like I, I jumped in, then he was on a roll. I'm like, okay, you know, and I let him speak. And now, well, all I was going to say is when you are friends that long, it, what's best is you know, Josh was implying that like you know you don't take it personally, you know, when you know somebody. But actually, when you know somebody you can take it personally and still it doesn't matter. You know, like well, you can make it personal on purpose to, to make the person angry, to throw the, try to get them on tilt a little bit. Yeah. And we can like push each other's buttons in a way that's almost like, okay, well, we've been through this before. Like, and I could even like be, comfortably say like, that's just like the dumbest idea and you're a horrible person. <laughs> thinking that idea. And, and, you know, if you said that to somebody you don't know that well, you don't know it's a joke. So it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's that uh, the, the more you know people, the, the better it is, the, the um, collaboration. But you have to have an opinion. You can't just say this is a story by consensus. Like, you know, let's, let's decide what an episode of Cobra Kai looks like. You have to, you know, for us to, to function, you know, in a, in a meaningful and constructive way, we have to go in and say, this is at least where we're approaching it from. This is where we think we're going. This is where we'd like to land. And and then if we don't land there, that's okay. But we still need to be comfortable about it at the end of the day because, you know, we're all responsible for it. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And on behalf of 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, I've invited my daughter Casey here to talk about all the blessed events that took place in 2020. My dog died. That is true. I haven't left the house in almost a year. Yeah. Trump pardoned Kushner's dad. Fires all around us. Black Panther and Phil Negro are dead. Bunch of neo-Nazi marches not that far away. My favorite congressman lost. Remember, I wanted positive. Positive! Oh, right. My brother just ordered three new USFL t-shirts off of 503-sports.com. They came quickly. They fit well. I like them. See? Everything's looking up. Can I get drunk now? Right, so I'm like a, uh, I'm a geeky writer guy. Like you, I've read about, you know, you, you're, you're kind of inspired by Fuller House and you think, oh, you know, Karate Kid is a, and it's a great idea and you pitch it and you sell it and someone's like, yeah, and Macho's in and everyone's in and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, okay, we green light this show. We're going to do this show. How do you actually know where to start? And how do you, like, literally, how do you, how do the three of you sit down and sort of write this series? This was the first time that three of us wrote um, together. John and I, had, you know, had done this before. And so for Josh, it, it was, it was, hey, let's get together. And there's one person on the keyboard. Um, you uh, attach the, the computer to a TV, giant TV monitor. So we're all, we're all seeing it. You know, one person is typing, um, but it's a conversation. And, you know, and you just kind of go from there. It starts from it starts from a place of just ideas. It's you don't start with like, hey, we're on let's we're on page one. It's so funny. I always think back to like growing up and and you know as a kid and like having the teacher teach you about like note cards and that kind of stuff with when writing a report. I never did that ever. I always would reverse engineer it and be like, oh, I'll just write the report and then I'll fake these note cards later. As a professional writer, I've learned that there's nothing more important than note cards. There's nothing more, or at least for us, there's nothing more important than like coming up with a bunch of ideas, writing them all down. And then you have this giant puzzle that you're putting together and you're putting it together as a group. And I think when it came to Cobra Kai, it was sort of like, 
we talked about character by character, the things that we wanted to achieve with this character, especially early on. It was like, we knew from the very beginning that we started the writing process that our first challenge is making the audience get on Johnny Lawrence's side in the first five minutes of the series. And it's like creating the underdog, creating this guy who's flawed. And so there's something entertaining and, and intriguing about him. Even like the fact that like his first line on the show may be like, great, more immigrants to Miguel. It's like, that's not likable, but that's something that's like, okay, like Johnny Lawrence, like there's something funny about seeing that guy who you knew when you were, you know, from the karate kid all these years, like this is what he became. He's this like drunk bum, you know, there who's being rude. He's like a grumpy kind of guy. And we had this like bad Santa kind of thing in our head and like bad news bears kind of thing where it's like, he's just sort of like this guy who's checked out on life. But he also has hanging over him this like karate rivalry that he had 35 years ago. And the guy who, uh, who won Daniel LaRusso happened to become this like, like auto King in the Valley. Who's on billboards and commercials on the radio, all that stuff. So not only is he not having a good life, he has thrown in his, in his face every single day that the guy who beat him in this tournament is like living it up. So we were, it was really like starting off like, okay, let's flip the script in terms and, of and like- And that all, that all happened are. before we sold the project. Like we, we talked about this for months and months. I mean, we, we, we talked about it for years, but, but when we really started working together on this before we pitched it to Sony or, and YouTube and everywhere else, before we met with Ralph and Billy, we essentially bare bones wrote the, the whole season in our heads. And, you know, in a, you know, 10 to 12 page, you know, single space document, everything that was going to happen in that first season. And 85% of what we wrote is in that first season. And even follow fast forwarding to the first day of the writer's room, you know, we had a giant whiteboard with columns for here are the 10 episodes. And there wasn't a lot of white space, you know, on day one, we said, here's kind of what we're going to do. There were maybe a couple episodes there where we were like, I don't know if this is the whole episode or if this is a piece of that. But we we had landed it. Um, and that was because we siloed it out. The three of us sat there and said, let's talk about Johnny. Let's talk about Daniel. Let's talk about where he was, where he where we find him, where he's going. You know, let's yeah. spend four days just doing that. Then, then let's talk about this new character, Miguel. Like, who is he when we find him? Where does where do we want to go with him? How soon do we want to get there? You know, where does the audience think we're going? And how are we going to subvert that expectation? And you end up with this giant shared Google document that's just 45 to, you know, 100 pages. Uh, and it's a mess. And there's just ideas that we texted each other that were just copied and pasted in there in the middle of the night that you have to go search for. And slowly you start organizing it and you realize, oh, wow, we have a whole season of TV here. As friends, you you eat a lot and hang out. And so a lot of these ideas come just like, let's grab lunch, let's do this. And we're just talking as we do it. So by the time we actually are sitting with that keyboard and everything, there's it's not like, okay, what is the, the show? It's like, we got to write down some of the things that we've already been talking about. Wait, so I'm interested by saying you, um, like Johnny is, is, I think it's one of the best TV characters I've, I remember seeing in a long, long time where he's a dick, but you love him. I get the acting element of it. Like he's obviously really, really good at this and has pulled it off really well. How do you create a character like that with the nuances and the details and him being this certain way and have it on paper so it's obvious what you're trying to get away with? I think with that, with his character and spe specifically, 
we're drawing on the fact that for us, at least, and I think for a lot of people, Billy Zapka was an icon outside of even the karate kid. He was in multiple movies where he played the blonde haired, you know, asshole guy. And he was somebody that we had talked about a lot. And, you know, it was, you know, not, you know, when you see things like, you know, how I met your mother did callbacks to Billy Zapka and there's been other things in the past. I think a lot of people, you know, he, he was the the quintessential 80s bully. And so, you know, it started at a place of like, well, what what happened to that guy? Like the bully from your high school. Sometimes there's those kids who are the king of high school. They end up, you know, later in life suddenly being the underdog. And that is just that's that's like the start of it there. So like, OK, we know. Now there's something fun about the fact that the, the the jerk is now the one I'm feeling bad for. So you start at that place. But here's the thing. We don't want him to not be a jerk. If he's suddenly like a sweet, nice guy, I'm losing the thing that was fun about him being an underdog. So it's a combination of like, okay, we have to show that he's a jerk and we do that in a bunch of different ways. You know, that he, you know, as John said, his first line is, you know, upon seeing Miguel in his building is like, oh, like he's it's just more immigrants for him. You know, when he sees that Miguel is getting bullied, he doesn't just jump in there and say, hey, stop picking on that kid. Bullying is wrong. They, you know, they, they push Miguel into his car. <laughs> he's like, hey, watch the car. Leave this dork alone. He's just annoyed yeah. by them. And so we wanted to show that, you know what, this guy is still a jerk but part of the fun of the show is that that bully aspect of him you know actually you know there's there's a strength and confidence in there that like you could actually transfer to these kids which is on the one hand you know gives you these emotional fun moments where you see okay a kid like miguel gaining confidence and going from this kid who gets picked on to being a badass but you also have the flip side of like this is the last person who should be teaching a kid like you know the the worst kid from his high school and so so we have all those different things that you're trying to do at once i think to add to you know with johnny because i think the challenge you're talking about like is you know, he says a lot of inappropriate things, yet you still root for him and you still like him. And he's, you know, I think it's, you know, we've made a conscious decision that he's not particularly bright and that he's very ignorant. And he's, because he's so like trapped in the past in the eighties that most of his behavior isn't coming me coming out in a mean spirited way. It's really just what he knows and how he like, so I think there's this element that the audience is able to associate with a different time and understand the satire of what's going on there with this character. Not only are we satirizing Johnny Lawrence, like this and Billy Zapka's persona as this eighties icon, as this bully, but we're kind of taking that kind of, headspace and we're not saying oh yeah a guy like that is awesome we're saying oh this guy's a, a loser now this guy is a loser and part of why he's a loser is because he's trapped in the past and he's still behaving these ways and the fun of the show is showing him grow grow like you know hayden mentioned like one of my favorite things and i remember getting a note from the studio was uh when the fight happens with miguel and we and it was a conscious decision for us to wait no he gets pushed into the car and that's when johnny stands up we had a note being like no johnny should like you know get in there and start saving him there and we're like no that's you're missing the point of this like you want him to be a, a guy who is selfish and not like you know keeping his head down and has withdrawn from the world in a sense 
and you need him to grow because it's that much more fulfilling when you get to episode seven and Johnny and Miguel are hugging each other and saying, you're the man. No, I'm the man. You know, you know, that kind of a thing like that only works if at the beginning, you know, Johnny's basically a piece of shit. Right. I would say I've been married for 19 years. There was a moment in the series where I've never seen my wife laugh harder. And it's the, uh, it's a scene when uh, Johnny and Danny are listening to REO Speedwagon as they drive down the street. How many speakers does this thing have? It has enough. Here. You like Speedwagon? What kind of man doesn't? But if you don't like it, no, no. I'm just kind of fascinated if you could give me a little soup to nuts, how that actually, how that scene, because there's not that much said. It's really two guys listening to REO Speedwagon, how that moment came to be. The, the biggest thing there between the three of us, constant stream of emails and texts, you know, what's the song? Um, because it, it needs to be that perfect song that feels like a natural intersection of where these two guys might sort of have met at a concert if they were both, you know, oh, you're here too kind of thing in the 80s. And, you know, that, that it was that same kind of magical moment upon hitting that song as it was on like when we, in our earliest, earliest conversations, decided like, okay, well, what is Daniel LaRusso doing that he's successful? And, you know, when we arrived at, you know, car dealer, it just made sense. Um, that Ario Speedwagon song just made a lot of sense. It had the right amount of badassness, but also laid backness that felt like they could both kind of like find themselves uniquely looking at each other in a way of like, I may not be on the same page as you, but it's a natural point of intersection. It, it's, I don't know. We, we looked at, you know, there've been a lot of movies that have done. It. I mean, John and Hayden did it in, in, uh, in Harold and Kumar, but, but where, where two characters find themselves in a vulnerable place, getting drawn into a feeling of a song and that being a moment that can cool tempers and can kind of set things on a new course. And there's something just hilarious about it. There's something a little bit relatable about it. And the audience by that point has been just struggling with these guys, butting heads and wishing that we could see a little bit of tenderness. Um, and just that little bit of light that opens the door there, I think gives everybody the the freedom to exhale a little bit um, as the series is reaching kind of that, you know, a moment in which there will only be gasps. Do you remember what other songs were considered? Yeah. Um, separate ways, um, a journey, I think we, we thought um, it felt a little too epic in that moment uh, with that big opening. Um, can't remember any other right now off, off the top of my head, but that was, that was, it was a close call with separate ways for a while. It, it was tough. It was one of those things where we were like, nothing was quite right until we got there. Well, is it hard to write? Um, it seems like it writing with a lot of dialogue. All right. There's dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Is it hard to write scenes where um, the mannerisms and the moment is carrying the scene more than the actual dialogue? Is that, is that more challenging or less challenging? Or am I just making something up? I think for, I think for us, you know, we've, 
one of the things that that we pride ourselves in and we preach in our writer's room is that like it's about headspace at all times like you have to understand a character's headspace when you enter a scene throughout the scene and the end of the scene and some of that comes out in dialogue and some of that comes out in in looks or or just the emotional feel so we're always writing in scripts you know the in a way that's clear to anyone who's reading the script exactly how people are feeling and how like the shot that you're going to want of the actor reacting to certain moments. So um, I think we love, we love those moments where one of my favorite scenes is, uh, you know, in the season two finale when Johnny and Daniel are in the elevator together after the fight happened and they're both at the hospital and they're both there and no words are spoken between the two of them. And you're able to kind of have a, a little bit of an arc within that scene of how these two guys, like they both know that they probably should say something to one another because they both kind of feel responsible and also blame each other a little bit for what's going on there. But the pain is so raw that they also know that like one wrong word and suddenly like they make things all the more worse. Uh, uh, you know, so you know, it's writing those kinds of scenes. Uh, it, it's fun to mix it up and, and have that kind of. Scene they're they're different muscles. I mean, we we we've each spent a couple decades, you know, crafting the perfect, you know, R-rated edgy joke that has you know the specific dialogue that's meant to give you that enormous belly laugh. Um, you know, this is a way more dramatic and earnest endeavor where we do have those moments of like, oh wow, that is the perfect hilarious line, but there's those moments that are just going for goosebumps or just going for, you know, a wistful feeling. And, you know, sometimes you have a song stuck in your head and you're like, we're going to write a, a montage here that is going to let the song carry it and not feel the need for dialogue to, to overtake it or to compete with it. Yeah. And when you give yourself up to something like that and it, and you're not going for a joke, it, um, it it's just as rewarding at the end when you see it kind of come together. But but you have to trust yourself that your instinct is right because you don't have any dialogue to cover yourself there. You have to know that the song is going to work and it's going to, it's going to land the way you want it to. Let me ask you guys a final question here. I, um, so I showed you, I have a story from the uh, March 19th, 2000 courier news in Bridgewater, New Jersey. And it's when John, uh, John, you and Hayden sort of initially hit. And there's a thing here. Um, they dream of days spent getting up at noon, then writing, then partying by a pool, then writing some more. So they write a screenplay during summer vacation, send it to Hollywood, and are discovered. They quickly cancel plans for careers that would have required them to wear suits. And I actually wonder, like all of you guys now, you're in your 40s, you've all had, you know, major successes, and you're, you have a show now that's a major success. Has it lived up, the career itself, lived up to what you thought it would be? And would you recommend to young, aspiring you know, screenwriters to sort of follow the pursuit. Is it harder than you thought it'd be? Is it easier than you thought it'd be? Is it still worthwhile? Um, I, I'm sure we each have a different thing, but, you know, I'll just say it, it's, it's both, it, you know, it's on the one hand, I, there's a lot of times where I feel like we're, I'm so thankful and blessed and I'm like living the dream that, you know, and especially on a show like Cobra Kai, where I get to work with my friends on this series that we talked about, even when we were in high school, not even thinking about, you know, writing for a career. So there are a lot of pinch me moments, a lot of great things, a lot of cool Hollywood moments where you meet a weird actor and parties and all that stuff that we've had over the years so there has been all of that but there's also so many challenges um even though things 
sort of in some ways came easy for us selling our first script. Like we said, like that script didn't get made. And so that there's like little things along the way. There's so many, most, most of the screenplays we've written haven't gotten made. And so we've had a lot of those frustrations and disappointments, or we've gotten something made, the movie came out and uh, you know, it's not like successful enough to have the sequel, whatever it is. Um, you, you know, I think we've just stayed hungry and like, we, we've always wanted to um, do what we're doing, but this industry has a way of like saying, like, we're going to forget about you in like six months or a year, unless you, you keep dancing monkey. So, you know, on the one hand, there's, uh, you know, you, you don't lose that drive. Um, um, but on the other hand, it's, it has been fun and, you know, we don't get up at 12. I'll tell you that. It's, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I would say that you have to love the work at the end of the day. Uh, You know, you have to love what you're doing to want to pursue this. It's not easy. We always say that, like, after, like, I say this to any young writer, and frankly, any writer, even if you've been doing it for 10 years, usually you finish that first script, and you have to be able to realize that what you wrote was garbage. Like, you, you worked really hard on that, and it sucks. And that it's hard to know that. And to understand that you just need to keep your head down and keep making it better and keep self-evaluating and, and, you know, uh, and accept the fact that there's going to be tons of failures. We've been lucky in the sense that we've been able to make careers of this and continue to pay the bills doing this, but most don't, most are not able to do that. So we always said like, you know, we, we were trained in other things and had we not had the successes that we had and we weren't able to pay the bills, we would have had to work on these other work, work other jobs and still have the passion to want to do this. But what I will say is like our lifestyle is very similar, but different to like how we've always been. The three of us 20 years ago, were hanging out talking about movies and talking about like, you know, whatever bullshit in life, like an episode of Seinfeld. And that's what our lives are now. Like our lives are not like, going to Hollywood parties all the time and doing all these things. Like two of us are married, want, uh, you know, have kids and have, you know, the, the traditional life. We're not like Hollywood folks. We're guys who love movies, love TV from the beginning. And we work really long hours, work all the time. We're always on. There's no, you know, there's no off time during the holiday season. Like we're like Josh and I right now are in the office. We've been zooming with Hayden all day and some other writers. And it's like, you know, a couple of days from new year's because we love it. And, you know, we know that the kind of work that needs to go in in order to like be able to do this. I think, I think the farther you get away from the beginning of your career, the less qualified you are to tell somebody whether or not it's a good idea for them to enter this business because the business continues to evolve and change dramatically sometimes um, in ways that make you look back and go, whoa, thank God I got in when I got in because everything has changed and I would have never been able to get in that same way again. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a little bit easier in some ways and harder in others, but but you're not there anymore. You know, one of the, the most interesting experiences I had was, you know, before I moved to LA, you know, I, John and Hayden were here um, you know, they, they seem to be having this, this charmed beginning to their career where of course their movie was going to get made and, and everything was going to work out and we'd all be sleeping until noon. Um, but you know, I called a, uh, you know, a, a guy that, um, that I never met, but who had, you know, gone to our college and, and worked in the entertainment industry. 
looking for some advice, you know, looking for, you know, a, you know, I want to be a writer, you know, what do you recommend? I was a very successful writer. Um, and he said to me, he's like, just don't, he's like, don't come like, you know, don't do it. When I got in, like they were kind of giving jobs away. It's just not easy anymore. You don't put yourself through that. My advice would be like, you know, find something else you're good at and go do it. And it was such a, you know, a gut punch of a, that's not why I called, you know, like I, I wanted to, I wanted to hear like some encouragement. Um, I, I would never, ever feel qualified to, to say that to anybody, even if I felt in my heart, you know, looking at the odds and, and feeling, you know, whatever jaded feelings you might have, you know, toward how difficult it is to thread the needle and, you know, and, and do something in a way that you can actually make a living. I think passion is worth following, especially at an age where most people try to follow their passion, you know, for screenwriting, you know, a lot of people are coming at it in a, at a younger part of their lives where you don't have a mortgage hanging over your head yet. You don't have children, you know, who, who are extra mouths to feed. You can live extremely frugally and eat ramen and live in a studio apartment and, you know, have your water turned off and chase it. There, there's a few years there where you're, you're able to, to kind of have a mulligan if it doesn't work out. And, you know, and I put a, I put a clock on myself when I moved here, you know, I was a management consultant um, briefly uh, before, or I uh, gave this a go and I said, you know, we're, we're going to give it a, a couple years here. And if it's not working out, if I can't look at my career, honestly, you know, at six months and say, am I, have I advanced enough in these six months to feel like it's not going to take me 3000 years to get where I'm going? Um, then it's worth continuing. And I was at a, a little bit of a precipice at the moment that I sold my first screenplay where, you know, I was, I was putting on the suit and, and going to a couple of interviews and, uh, the 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 first interview I went back to, I was like, all right, I'll still live in LA, but maybe I'll be a consultant again. And I, I ended up driving to this uh, to this interview with a very prestigious management consulting company downtown, and I spilled an entire latte all over my suit, my dress shirt, myself. And I think it was a sign saying, like, where the hell are you going? Like, don't you like you know eating the ramen and the burgers and you know and going over to those guys' house and talking about Karate Kid? Um, maybe there's a future in that. And, you know, thankfully I wasn't offered the job because I probably looked like a slob, who, you know, can't drink a coffee properly, but I think you have to be honest. There's a, it's a balance, you know, as with everything you have to follow your passion, but you also have to be honest with whether or not that passion is, you know, being carried on something, you know, whether it's somebody else's shoulders or the right person whispering in the right ear or the right, decision to take the assistant job at the place that's going to promote you. There's, there's lots of interesting doors that can lead to, you know, climbing up the ladder, but you have to choose those doors carefully and, and be, and be honest with yourself. And that's where a lot of, you know, a, a lot of mistakes are made sometimes. I just want to tell you guys, my, um, early on when I was out here in LA, a guy said, yeah, I want to represent, I want to represent you and blah, blah, blah. He said, I'm going to take you to the Soho club. Right, the so the Soho Club or Soho House? Oh, Soho, Soho House, I think. Right? I'm gonna take yeah. you to the Soho House in LA. He takes me to Soho House in LA, and I'm, t I'm like saying to my wife, "I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing!" And I'm up there at the Soho House, and he pulls out his phone and he goes, "He's about my age, right?" So at the time, he's about forty. He's like, uh, "You want to see all the girls I've been fucking?" And he literally takes out his phone and starts scrolling through naked pictures of women that he took. That he sh and he's like, "I fucked her, fucked her, check out her." And I'm like what the heck, like, what the heck is this? And that was my introduction to uh, LA Hollywood life. So I assume you guys are all hanging out at the, uh, at the Soho. <laughs> the Soho house showing. We, we were also lucky that like, we came out here with 
our, like John and I together. And so we kind of kept our East Coast almost like island out here. Um, but we love L.A. I mean, it, it was a weird it's a weird place growing up in New Jersey, you know, like um, so for us, we enjoy the whatever stereotypes you want to say the superficiality of it like for us that's entertaining because we have enough friends that are you know uh that have substance so why uh listen uh the show is awesome it's brought us true joy during a shitty year and um So I appreciate you guys all doing this. This has been delightful. And thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. Thank you. It's great to talk thank to you. It's been fun. I want to thank today's guests, John Hurwitz, Aiden Slosberg, and Josh Heald, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at John Hurwitz, Aiden at Mick Slosberg, and Josh at Heald Rules. And watch Cobra Kai's first three seasons, which are all available on Netflix. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.